Well, last week we talked about the importance of how to have confidence in the midst of crisis. And this week we're going to talk about the importance of our attitude as we go through times of crisis. And we're doing this study in Paul's text that he sent out to a group of believers in the city of Philippi who were going through a time of crisis. Paul personally was going through a time of crisis, being falsely accused in prison while he wrote this, uh, awaiting trial, hoping he could be freed. Um, so it really is relevant to, to us today. And so as you turn, open your Bible apps or turn in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. I want to remind you again on the YouVersion app, you can uh, find the scriptures and the sermon uh, slides, notes on there that might help you. And while you're just getting situated and getting ready, you might wonder uh, the backdrop behind us today. Uh, in the midst of all the trouble that we're going through right now and the difficulties, there's still joys and celebrations. And so we had a wedding ceremony here yesterday afternoon. And uh, one of the people of our many good AVL production team, uh, kind of the guy that's head, the young man that's heading that up now, Curtis Chevron, he got married here yesterday, and uh, Curtis and Deanna, so yeah. And uh, we, uh, we just said, hey, that's pretty, it's fine, leave it up for, for another day, and then you know, they'll, they'll take it down this week, but they, they had a busy day yesterday, but it was, a, it was a good time of celebration. So in the midst of the struggles, there is still a lot of joy and good things happening. So along those lines, I want us to think about our attitude as we go through times of crisis because I think we all understand how important our attitude is. It really does set the tone for how we respond to things in life and, and how we can make others feel around us. It really affects the people around us. And attitude is the way that we see life. It's the way that we think it ought to be, and it's how we respond to that. And it really is shown by um, how we react to things day in and day out. And there's been a lot of sayings about attitude, just a couple of them I was reminded of this week. One of them uh, goes something like this. Um, a bad attitude is like a flat tire. Unless you change it, you won't get anywhere. That sounds like a dad joke, doesn't it? <laughs> but but it's, it's true. And then also we've heard this phrase that our attitude affects our altitude. Or in other words, your attitude can either bring others up and lift others up that you're around, or it can press them down, shove them down. So our attitude really does have an, an influence, not only on ourselves, but on the people around us. And what I'd like for you to take a few moments today, this morning, to think about is how, ask yourself this question, how is my attitude affecting the people around me? How is it affecting my parents, if you're a kid, how is it affecting my kids, if, it's a, if, if you're a parent, your spouse, family members, co-workers, and really the best way to find that out, because sometimes we're not aware of our attitude and how it's affecting, so really the best way to find this out is to ask the people around you. So I'm going to challenge you to be really brave and just have an honest conversation with those that you're around and say, hey, how has my attitude been like this week? I, I, need to, I need to find out. And then be ready to listen 
and not get defensive. <laughs> really listen to what they have to say, and then that will give you an idea of whether you need to adjust your attitude or whether it's, it's doing okay. So the Apostle Paul writes about this very thing in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's look at it. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version this morning, but again, I, I mix it up from time to time, but whatever version you use, let's look at it together. He writes this in his text. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, Christ's Holy Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we look at this passage, verse three really hits it for me, and this is what I wanna spend the bulk of our time here this morning thinking about because the Apostle Paul highlights three different attitudes that we can have as we go through life. And he mentions them, selfish ambition, vain conceit, and then humility. And he makes the case that humility is the best attitude to have really any time, but especially as we're going through times of crisis. And why is that? Because our attitude directs our actions. The attitude that we have absolutely will influence and direct the next steps that we take in our actions and how we respond to times of crisis and how we respond to others that are also going through times of crisis. But let's just break it down, those three things. So first, let's focus on the first attitude that he mentions, because he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Now, because I like to kind of dig in and do word studies, Again, I'm no Greek scholar, but I can use Greek dictionaries and all the tools that are, are given for us to study. But the Greek word that the Apostle Paul used when he wrote this original script in the Greek, it's erytheia, and it literally in the Greek describes this, a desire to put oneself forward in a contentious and partisan and factious way. In other words, it's really having a bad attitude. It's like, I don't care what you think, I'm gonna press forward, I'm gonna have my way, I'm gonna get what I wanna see happen done. And I don't care how it affects anybody else. 
And he uses that term there, partisan, because it literally is like political parties. Believe it or not, before America ever existed, there were political parties. And there were factions. And you study world history. In Rome, there were different political parties that were striving for power. It's always been a part of uh, the culture in the world, one way or another. And so certainly we have that in America today. We have more than the two parties. The two parties that are most obvious, obvious is the Democratic and the Republican Party. But there's Libertarian and there's other parties that are vying to get some attention and have their platforms to say, hey, join with us. And this is what we're striving for to help uh, our, our country be better in the way that we feel. But anyway, it, it denotes this self-seeking pursuit uh, to gain political office and actually by unfair means or really any means possible. So we see that today. Ambition is not bad. Selfish ambition is. Jesus Christ was ambitious. He had a goal and he worked hard to achieve that goal. So Jesus Christ absolutely had ambition, but it wasn't selfish ambition. He was seeking to do God's will and God's work for the benefit of all of us, not for his own selfish benefit. And that's the difference. So what makes ambition bad is when it's motivated by a self-centered attitude that you're going to have your way no matter what. So let's think about that in terms of a crisis situation. Now, this is not to insult anyone's intelligence, but let's think for a moment, because we use the word crisis a lot. And I would like to just really define what crisis means. And let me tell you what crisis is not. Crisis is not trying to decide what you were going to wear to church this morning. Crisis is not trying to decide what you're going to have for lunch or where you're going to eat, unless it's the last meal that you have, your last little morsels of food, and you're trying to decide who's going to eat it, then that would be a crisis. But in most situations, we refer to things or think of it as a crisis, and we overly dramatize it. So again, what am I talking about when I'm talking about real crisis? Well, again, there's several definitions, but a couple of them I wanted to share with you today that I think really grasps the main meaning of it, is an event leading to an unstable, and dangerous situation that affects an individual, a group, a community, or a whole society. So with the pandemic, I think that that probably would qualify as a crisis because it definitely impacts us individually, as a group, as a community, and as a whole society around the world. Another definition of crisis, which can bring it down more personal, is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger when a difficult or important decision must be made. So many people through this time, because of the way it's impacted our economy and places have been shut down, they've lost their jobs or they can't work or they've had to make major adjustments that impacts them personally or their family. Well, for that individual and for that family, it is a crisis situation because it's bringing them into an unstable time, they have to make decisions. This impacted us in kind of a minor way over the last few months. Julie, uh, my wife, is a hairdresser, for those of you that don't know, and she works in West Virginia. So obviously when the laws came out in West Virginia that all of those hair salons and things had to shut down, she couldn't work. 
and there were several weeks there that she was not able to provide that service for her customers and also it was a loss of income for us now god provided through that time and i'm thankful for that but the point is this it was getting to a point where after uh, quite a few weeks she said you know mark I, I can't just sit around the house here uh she stays busy but she said i, I got to do something i may have to just see if i can get on somewhere as a cashier so that i can do something and get some income and, and also to to feel useful now, as, as it turns out, uh, as she was going through that decision-making process, so again, it was, it was a crisis time for her and kind of for us, but a, not a major one, but an important, difficult decision needed to be made. Thankfully, things opened up. She was able to go back to work, but even that was a decision she had to make because she's exposed in close counters with people that come in uh, from different places, and so she was wearing a mask, customers were wearing a mask. Again, all these things that we're all struggling with right now. But right now, it's, it is risky to live. Uh, life in itself is risky, but it seems like sometimes now the risks are even uh, higher. But the point of all this is, we need to make sure that we don't have the attitude of a selfish ambition that we're going to have our way no matter what. So it's similar to what James mentions in this way. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He, he puts it this way, talking about this attitude, though he doesn't mention selfish ambition, it's pretty much implied here. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. And I would say there that we could imply this isn't a stretch, I don't believe, of God's word to say you ask with the wrong attitude. You're either asking because of selfish ambition or vain conceit or what is your motive, but why are you asking? Because sometimes we pray for things and we ask God for things and we're not doing it in the right way with the right reasons and God in his wisdom knows what to grant and what not to grant. Anyway, he goes on and he says, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So again, selfish, selfish ambition, vain conceit. And that leads into the second attitude that Paul outlines there in verse three, this uh, phrase that's translated into English, vain conceit. Again, the Greek word there is, Kinodoxia, and it means a groundless self-esteem, an empty pride. It's, it's an excessive, favorable opinion of yourself, uh, more so than it should be. In other words, you kind of feel like, you know what, I, I, have, I know more than these people do. I know what I'm hearing physicians say, but I know more than them. I hear what the politicians say, but I know more than them. I hear what Pastor Mark says, but he doesn't know how my life is. I know more than him. And you could go on and on. I know what my parents tell me, but I know more than them. You get the idea. Vain conceit. It's, it's a puffed up feeling of yourself and your ability and your knowledge, and therefore you're not going to let anybody tell you what to do because you know better than they do. Now listen to me. It's okay and it's healthy to have some sense of worth in your life because your life does matter. Jesus Christ gave his life for you, for your life on the cross of Calvary. So your life has absolute value. 
But what we can do is we can become puffed up and arrogant with a sense of ourselves. And so it is important for us to have some self-esteem, but just don't get so puffed up that you're no longer teachable and you think that uh, you know more than other people do. Here's a sign of people that have um, vain conceit. They're usually very easily offended. It just doesn't take much to rub them the wrong way and then they'll spout off and boy, you hear about it. And if, and you may not, if you're that way, you may not classify yourself as that. But I think if you're really honest and if we're honest to think about it, that's what causes so much offense in the world because we feel like we deserve better, we ought to be treated better and we've been offended in some way. And so by golly, uh, we're gonna let someone know about it. Let me share with you a story. I'm gonna read it, um, but it's a story of two men that went to church one Sunday. And, and this has been around for a while, but I think it illustrates an attitude that we can have is still absolutely relevant today. So let me just share that with you. Jim Smith went to church on Sunday morning. He didn't like the way the music was played and what went on before the service started and he scowled. He saw a teenager looking at his phone during the prayer time and he thought, that's typical. He didn't like it when the pastor talked about the importance of financial giving and it just made him boil. He noticed by actual count that the preacher made a slip of the tongue five times during the sermon. By the way, you'll probably notice I make a slip of the tongue, Pastor Eric does, we all do. Hey, but we're up here trying, all right? <laughs> As he walked out the side door during the closing song, he thought to himself, never again, what a bunch of bub bumbling, crude hypocrites. Well, Ron Jones went to that same church on that same Sunday morning to the exact same service. He heard the musicians play an arrangement of a mighty fortress is our God, and he was thrilled at the majesty of it. He heard a young girl take a moment in the service to talk about the difference that her faith makes in her life. And he was glad to see in the church budget that part of the offering was going to help feed hungry children in Nigeria. And he especially appreciated the sermon that Sunday because it answered a question that had been bothering him for a long time. And he thought as he walked out the doors of the church, how can a person come here and not feel the presence of God? Now, what was the difference? Both of these men attended the exact same church, exact same service at the exact same time, but they saw two totally different things. And it's obvious, it was their attitude their attitude. And I can speak from personal experience from over 20 years in the ministry as a pastor that this is an exact true representation of what happens in the church. This is not to beat anybody up, but I'm telling you, I deal with it all the time. Not so much now as we used to, but you know, I, the, the thing that one person would say, that was awesome in the service today, I'd have another person say, I didn't like that. <laughs> well, how's come you all are doing this? I think you ought to do this. And then the very thing this person says, we think we ought to do, the other person's like, well, I don't think we ought to do that. Um, something as simple as this. Oh, now I'm gonna get preaching. Now I'm gonna get stepping on toes. Isn't it amazing that a little piece of cloth can cause so much division and controversy in the church. 
Some look at it and say, how could you not wear it and be considerate? And others could say, why are you making us wear those things? I can't breathe and you know, I have my freedom and all that. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful of either side. I'm just saying, this is what we deal with. And we all need to be aware of it. So I'm calling all of us on it. Watch your attitude about the masks. Because as strongly as you feel, someone else feels as strongly the other way. And we're not gonna win if we're gonna have strife and bitterness over a piece of cloth. So I want us to respect each other. If you're not comfortable being close to somebody that doesn't have a mask, wave and keep your distance and smile. <laughs> and if you have a mask on and you feel like because you have a mask, you can get a little closer to somebody, you know, again, just be respectful. Have the same love for one another that Christ has for the church. And we'll get through this. So now I'm gonna talk about politically some things about attitude. And I know some people don't like to hear politics in church because you want to get away from it. And I'm not, I, I get, I'm just dealing with principles here because I know I get aggravated and fired up when they talk about, you know, all of the sports teams now is going to be allowed to have their political statements, uh, you know, on their uniforms and all these different things. And it's like, seriously, I just like to watch athletes compete. I'd like to get away from that for a while. But because what we teach and preach from the Word of God has application to everyday life, I think it's important for us to talk about it and not just flee and escape from it. So let's think for a moment in the same concept about the same guys that go to the same church and yet they see different things. Well, think about it this way. Some look at the American flag and they think of the men and women of various races who have sacrificed their lives in wars and conflicts so that America can be a place where people can leave, live freely and have opportunity. And they fought for other countries to have that freedom as well, no matter what your color of skin. Others look at the American flag and they only see it as a representation of selfishness, greed, and racism and abuse. Some people fight to maintain freedom of speech under that American flag for everyone, even people they disagree with. Others use their freedom of speech under that same flag to try and silence those that disagree with them. Some use freedom we have under the flag in this country to protest in peaceful ways and speak out for what they believe. Others use freedom under that same flag as a license to destroy property and lives and to burn the flag because of their hatred for those who disagree with them. Am I not speaking the truth? What is the difference? Same country, same flag. What's the difference? Attitude. Do you see what I'm saying? What the scripture addresses, attitude directs your actions. And this is serious stuff. This isn't a feel-good sermon, but it's neither a sermon to beat us up. It's a sermon for us, again, to wake up and take a look at our attitude and not be afraid to stand when others are belittling something and you have a different attitude about it, to stand and support it. And I say this about our country, even with all its flaws and faults, and I say this about the church, even with all its flaws and faults, we serve one God who loves us supremely, gave his life for us, and that's who we ought to be rallying around 
And that's who we ought to be standing for. And with all the flaws in America today, I would rather have America and this flawed form of a democratic government than communism or socialism or any other form of government that has existed in the world. Because it's all imperfect because it is made up of imperfect people, sinners. But when you have a democracy, at least we have an opportunity. And by the way, it's a republic democracy. And if you don't even know what I just meant by that, do a little research. Understand how your government works. Understand that it's not a popularity contest, and that's why we don't all vote, and the one that gets the most votes wins. We are a republic so that some states that have fewer populations can still get the same type of representation and have an opportunity to have a voice instead of be drowned out by the large cities where one certain population lives and then what they say directs the rest of the country. So again, with all of the flaws that this country has, I would still rather live under democracy and a republic than under communism or socialism. So for those of you that are fighting for communism and socialism and think it's a superior form of government, do some homework, do some research, look at history where other nations have put those forms of government in place. And as a Christian, we should be taking part in the form of government that we've been blessed so that we can have a voice. Now, having said all that, the greatest government is a government under Jesus Christ. God's government is the absolute best, but he's going to decide when he sets that up. And Christ is going to come back at one point and he's going to set up his government and as a citizen of heaven, even though I'm a citizen of earth right now, I'll do my best to support kingdom principles in this earthly imperfect world while I wait for him to set up his kingdom, but I'll let him do that because he's God and I'm not. But we are all being affected by this same pandemic and we all have the same choice to let our voices be heard Please do not let others use fear-mongering and force to try to silence the voice of truth. Be willing to stand, no matter what. But again, have the correct attitude, not selfish ambition, not vain conceit, and that brings me to the, the attitude that we should have, and I hope is coming across in the message this morning. And that is an attitude of humility. You can be humble and still be bold. You can be humble and speak the truth. And you can speak the truth and you can do it mean-spirited or you can speak the truth in love. And again, how people receive it will depend on their attitude. But the core attitude that we should have is humility. And again, this Greek word, this one is a hard one for me to say, and I know most of you don't even care, but I'm going to try. It's Tapanafrasune, I like humble a lot better. It's a lot easier to say. But what that Greek word means, having a modest opinion of yourself, a modest opinion of yourself, and also a deep sense of one's moral littleness. You know, we got a lot of people in this country and sometimes even in the church that go around thinking that somehow they are, we are all just so morally superior. And that is not a humble attitude. Now, as we follow Christ and we want to have his morality infused in us and live by his morality, I do believe that's a better way to live and I'll stand for that and I'll advocate for that. 
But at the same time, I'm not going to look around and say that because I have Christ in my life and I'm trying to live right, that somehow I'm better than you because my morality is better than you because in the midst of my morality that I have in Christ, I know without Christ, my morality is right in the gutter with everybody else. Am I not being honest? Because again, in church, we deal with the same temptations, the same struggles, that is out there in the world. The only difference is if we're serious about our faith in Christ, we're allowing his spirit and his righteousness to work in us. So we're trying to align ourselves with that and just learn to live it out. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But humility is not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. It doesn't mean that you should go around like you're the scum of the earth and crawl and grovel. Jesus Christ was very humble but he was very powerful. And in humility, he showed his power because again, he wanted to honor God and he wanted to help people. So humility is really important because again, it, we need to consider this as we're considering our attitude and which of those three we ought to have when we go through crisis times. We also need to consider this, because that's the sermon title, consideration through crisis, we need to consider this, that our attitude absolutely directs our actions. I mentioned this earlier. And that's why the Apostle Paul goes on right after he addresses those three uh, attitudes. In verse 4, he says this, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is where I go back to the mask wearing or the things that we're dealing with every day. Yes, okay, think about how you need to conduct yourself but also be considerate of others and how they're trying to conduct themselves. If you have a selfish attitude, it will tend to lead to selfish decisions and actions. If you have vain conceit or arrogance, often it leads to foolish actions because you think you know it all and you're not willing to be teachable or listen to somebody's viewpoint before you make a decision. You just charge ahead and you do what you think is best. But if you have humility, it will lead to actions that not only help yourself, but helps others because you've remained teachable and you want to be cooperative and you're wanting to do what is good not only for yourself, but for other people. And so now the apostle Paul takes that and he blends it right in to say, Christ Jesus is the one that shows us how to live out this attitude and how it should direct our actions. So that he literally says this in verse five of Philippians two, let this mind or this attitude, this way of thinking in other words, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now I'm reading this from a little different translation what I read to you earlier in the New International Version says that we need to consider Christ because he didn't consider uh, his, his Godhead being with God something that, that he needed to grasp or hold on to. This says uh, he, he was in the form of God but did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This can kind of be a, a confusing kind of a phrase. It's a little bit hard to understand, but just let me try to help you with that a little bit. What, what the Apostle Paul, I believe, is trying to say here is he's saying, even though God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are all one, and Christ had every opportunity to say, when he looked down at the world that he had created, and after he had seen how sin had corrupted everything, and it was not now the way he had designed it to be, he had every right to look down there and say, 
I'm not going down there in that mess. I'm just, I'm staying right up here. I'm hanging on to this. I'm not going down there. And I shared in the first service, and again, I'll share it with you. This is not something I had planned, but it's something I believe the Holy Spirit's putting on my heart. So if this repulses you, I'm sorry. I've only done this one other time, but to help me grasp the, the courage, the, the humility for the holy and righteous God who created us to enter the creation that is all messed up and corrupt with sin. Because remember, he's, he's sinless. There is no lie in God. There's no wrongdoing in God. We, on the other hand, we do wrongly. We lie. We hurt others. We do things. That is so not God's nature. So how many of you enjoy cleaning toilets? You don't raise your hand. I know there's some say, oh, I really like to clean toilets. That's fine. I, I don't. So I'll just take it one step further because toilets are relatively clean because you can flush them and the water ain't. But how many of you would enjoy uh, cleaning out a porta potty if you didn't have a vacuum hose to go in there and um, suction all the debris out? How many of you would want to just dive in there and roll up your sleeves and start wiping and cleaning? Or I'll take it one step further. I, we used to camp a lot. Have you ever been to the campsites where, and sometimes at parks, where they don't have any of the plumbing, so they basically just dig a big pit in the ground, put a slab of concrete on it with a hole in it, you know, and a shelter, and they get, put a little pot on it there you can sit on. And anybody, I want to see this. Anybody with me? Okay, I see some hands here. Isn't that a lovely experience? I mean, I've often thought, you know how they have those little plug-ins that have the scent, the aroma, you plug in the wall and it gives off that aroma? I was like, you know, they really ought to try to bottle this stuff somehow. I mean, wouldn't that be great to just have that wafting throughout your house constantly? Okay, you know, I'm being a little silly, but it's really gross and disgusting. And it's like, you can't wait to just do what you need to do and get out of there. So... Even though this is very repulsive, I want you to think about this. Jesus, in all of his perfection and purity and cleanness, looks at the world. And yes, he sees us and he loves us, but he also sees our filth. It's like looking down in the middle of that campground pit with all the stuff and saying, you know what, I'm going to do it. And he literally dives down in. And he's like, I'm going to start cleaning this thing up. The perfect, sinless, holy, righteous creator came into the filth of this world that we so corrupted and messed up. And he said, I, I love these people enough, I'm going to do something about it. That's kind of the gist of the attitude that the Apostle Paul is talking about here where he's saying Jesus didn't just hang on and say, I'm not doing that. But he was willing to let go and humble himself and come down into this mess and say, I'm going to make a difference because I can. And now I'm going to take it one step further. When he died on the cross, he's eternal. When he took on flesh and blood, he, he came to a point where he was able to make himself in that physical body, be able to not only experience life, but physically he could experience death, though he didn't have to. Because again, the wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned, so he did not have to die. That's a curse that we have because of our corruption. And Jesus said, I'm gonna take that curse 
and I'm gonna take it on myself so that I can clean them up and get them free of this corruption because I'm gonna not only take it on, but then I'm gonna conquer it and I'm gonna clean it up. So just to go one more step, as if you didn't think enough about what it took for Jesus to be spat upon, to be mocked, to be physically abused, to be nailed to the cross, to have his blood pouring out, and as he's doing this, the very ones that are mocking him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. They're corrupt. They're, they're bad. But forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing, and I want to show them. I want to make them better. I want them to come to me that they might be clean. Well, think of it this way. If you were down in that pit with all that stuff at the campground and you're trying to clean it up, think about drowning in that. Just, I know it's really repulsive and it's disgusting and it's sick, but if you will take the time to think about what that would be like, the filth, and taking it into your mouth and then into your lungs because you can't breathe and you literally suffocate and drown in that, now you're going to start getting an idea of what it took for Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. It's huge. Don't take it lightly. This is what God has done for you and I. No other false God, no other religious being, no other whoever has done anything like that. Christ and Christ alone is the only one who has done that. And that's why we should put our trust in him and receive the gift that he's given us and have an attitude of humility and thankfulness that he is sparing us from all this corruption because he conquered death. He came out of that tomb. He came out of that corruption and he said, I've overcome it and you come to me and you can be clean. You can start experiencing my spirit in your life. You don't have to be caught up in all that stuff. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So here again, politically, I'm telling you, I don't know what reasons you may kneel or not kneel, but I'm telling you on the authority of the word of God that one day every knee is going to bow to Jesus. And it's going to be because he's worthy to be bowed before in reverence and respect. For those of us that have trusted him of our own free will right now as our savior, then in adoration, we're gonna bow our knee or our knees. And we're going to just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for what you've done for us in humility, that attitude. But, for others who refuse to bow now because of selfish ambition or vain conceit, uh, all of those things, Be those who refuse to bow now and use their free will to reject him, there's coming a time when he's going to say, I gave you every chance. I gave my life for you, you rejected me. Now you're gonna have to realize who I really am and they're going to be forced to bow before him because they acknowledge that they were wrong the problem is at that point, they're gonna be destined for an eternity separated from him. That's why today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to trust Christ as our savior. Now is the time to have the right attitude toward him and toward each other. An attitude of humility and confession and receiving him and asking him to guide us through our life. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So those that think they're right, that have rejected Christ, one day are going to have to admit that they're wrong. And for those of us now who understand that we're not all high and mighty and we're not all that, and we're not prideful about the things that we shouldn't be prideful in, and we acknowledge our sinfulness and our moral littleness and we ask God to forgive us, it says if we confess our sins, we admit to him, you're right, we're wrong, and we humble ourselves now, we'll be exalted. He said, and that's what I wanted all along. I just wanted you to have the attitude of humility, to walk with me, to serve me, to help others. So we need to consider finally, and this is what I wanna wrap this up with, all of that leads into, if we jump on down to verse 12 in the Apostle Paul's text here, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This is the third thing that we should consider in a time of crisis. Consider what Christ wants us to do. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Notice it says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. There's a big distinction there. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that we need to work for our salvation. There's, there's no amount of work or good that you could try to do to earn a place in heaven. That would be selfish ambition and vain conceit. We need to have a sense of our own moral littleness, that humility, and say, I can't work my way into heaven. God, will you please help me? And he says, yes, I've given you the gift of forgiveness. I've given you Christ. This is, I'm giving you the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. So you need to, by faith, receive that gift. So we don't work for our salvation, but once we receive the gift of Christ into our life, we do need to learn how to work out our salvation. How do I live this out? What does it mean? How do I use this gift? How can it help me? How can it help other people? And he's given us instru an instruction manual. That's why Jesus said when we go into all the world and we proclaim the gospel and we make disciples of Jesus, he said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. His word in the New Testament, the instruction manual. Julie years ago gave me a, a chainsaw. We had some uh, shrubbery and stuff around uh, and some trees that we need to keep trimming, trimming up. And she was nice enough to, to buy me just a small chainsaw that we could do that work because I didn't have one. I'd used some different chainsaws before. Anyway, she gave it to me as a gift. I didn't have to do anything to work for it, to deserve it. She just gave it to me. I accepted it. So I'm, I'm trying to get the analogy here of the salvation thing. So I didn't work for the chainsaw. She gave it to me. When I got it though, I needed to learn how to work with it. I needed to learn how to use that gift so it could be productive and do things around the house that I wanted to do, make a difference. And it came with a little instruction manual because every saw is different even though a lot of them are similar. So I had to learn the peculiarities of this, this saw, uh, how to prime it, what to do, which buttons to hit, you know, how to pull, start it, which again, a lot of it's very similar, but this one had its little unique things. And once I took the time to do it, I was able to use that chainsaw and I still got it to this day and I still use it learning to work out what the saw was designed for, that's, that's kind of the analogy I'm trying to draw here with your salvation. Yes, maybe you prayed a prayer a long time ago and trusted Jesus, but are you learning to work out that salvation? Are you learning what to do with it? Are you just going on your merry way, you've thrown the instruction manual away, and then you wonder why life doesn't work the way that you think it ought to work. So we need to learn how to do what Christ wants us to do in the world to use this gift of salvation to help us 
and to help others. So again, just to wrap this up, a quick little review. What should we consider? What could be, should be our consideration through this time of crisis or really any time? Well, first of all, we need to consider our attitude and humility is the best attitude to have. We need to consider that the attitude that we have, whichever it is of those three, it's definitely gonna direct our actions and how we respond to things and the direction that we set. And then we also need to consider what Christ wants us to do in the midst of all this. Would you stand? Lord Jesus, thank you for your instruction in your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. And I thank you that even through this time of crisis, this time of turmoil and difficulty in the world, you are speaking to us. You are reminding us that, that this is not the first time this world has encountered political unrest. It's not the first time this world has in, encountered plagues and pandemics. It's not the first time. So help us, Lord, to look to you and your wisdom as our creator and redeemer and the one who, who has lived beyond all of these generations generations that we could look at your eternal wisdom and learn how to apply your word to our lives now in this time of crisis, whether it's individually in our lives or in our families and certainly as part of the world. Thank you for your presence that you offer. And if there's any listening to this message today that hasn't trusted you, I pray that you would just use this message today to touch their heart, help them to understand how much you love them, the filth that, that you overcame for them so that they could be clean and free of the corruption and the filth that is in their mind, in their heart, in their soul, really in the soul, in the heart, and the mind of all of us. Thank you for being willing to clean our corruption through your perfect sinless blood that you shed on the cross of Calvary. And thank you for conquering the curse of death that we're all under so that through faith in you, we can receive this gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And one day your kingdom that you will set up that is so much better than any earthly kingdom that has ever been. And if we have trusted you, for those of us that have trusted you, help us to check our attitude and to adjust it as needed that we would honor you in what we do and what we say and how we live in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.